He is risen. All right, there you go. Hey, we're three years into this. You guys are getting better at that every year. Uh, so, hey, happy Easter, Salt Church. Uh, we are gathered here today because the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. Jesus Christ has conquered death, and Christ is alive. Amen? Uh, so, hey, um, my name is Michael. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. If this is your first time joining us, thank you so much for checking us out this morning. Uh, this is like for pastors, this is Super Bowl Sunday, and my team, the Cardinals, never make it to the Super Bowl, so this is just one time a year where I get to just roll with it. Uh, so hey, this morning, I need you all to do me a favor. I need us to put on, like, act like we're five. Put on, like, your imagination hat. Uh, we should all be good at this, given what society tells us to do. I'm going to ask you to identify as something that you're not really, okay? So this morning, we're all, if we had name tags, they would all say Peter, uh, everybody in here, our name is Peter this morning. Uh, so there's a million different directions you could go on Easter Sunday. So this morning, we're going to look at a guy in Scripture named Peter, a very, very prominent figure in Scripture. And we're going to do that by contrasting two stories of Peter that are found in the Bible. And uh, my hope is that we're going to see a lot of us here, if we're wearing a name tag, Peter, uh, we're going to look just like him, uh, because we probably do. Uh, but in the end, we're all going to be left with a question. Uh, when we encounter Jesus, in particular, when we encounter the resurrected Jesus, I'm not up here to argue that the resurrection happened. It did. Uh, but whether it's this morning, it's when you leave, it's when this sermon hits you this week, whenever, when you encounter the resurrected Jesus, literally the only person that has raised himself from the dead in all of human history, when you encounter him, what's your response to that? And my point is that you can only move in one of two directions. Either you can move toward him or you move away from him. There's no option to stand still. Uh, so if we're all Peter, you only move toward Jesus, you only move away from him, you can't stand still. Uh, so hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5 and John chapter 21. Uh, so if you want to turn to Luke 5, that would be a good idea. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, I will put all the words up on the screen. And so while you're turning to Luke 5, let me just open us in a word of prayer. God, I thank you for today. Uh, Lord, I thank you what we get to celebrate every Sunday, uh, but a special emphasis on it today, uh, the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I just pray that you impact hearts, uh, open up our hearts, minds, and ears to what you would have. Uh, Lord, let me go down way and just simply preach how great you are. Uh, so God, we give the next 30 minutes or so to you. I just pray that you work in this room. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so let me take you to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Uh, so that's going to be in Luke chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. Luke is really detailed in the way he writes. He gives us the setting. So it says, as the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He, that's Jesus, got into one of the boats which belonged to Simon and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. So that's the setting. So all throughout the Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each writer makes it clear that the one thing that massively distinguished Jesus from every other religious leader or teacher of the day is that he taught with a specific level of authority that no one had. 
Right when Jesus started teaching, he started to just attract this large crowd. And here we are at the beginning of his ministry, and Luke is so detailed in really showing us and telling us how Jesus had to angle himself just to teach the people. Uh, Here's Jesus at the edge of a big lake. Uh, People are surrounding him to where he's like backed up into the water. He sees two empty boats. The fishermen are next to the boat cleaning their nets. He gets into Simon's boat. Peter is Simon. Simon is Peter. The guy I asked you to identify with. Two names, one guy, we'll just call him Peter. He gets into Peter's boat. He tells Peter, yo, push me back a little bit from the shore. Give me some space. Like acoustically, it probably sounded good. And then like a boss, Jesus just sits down on the boat, starts teaching the people. But he gets done teaching, and he looks at Peter, and he gives Peter instructions. It says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, remember that's Peter, Put out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Well, master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and we've caught nothing. All right, so we've established Jesus had the authority to teach scripture better than anybody else. But if you're Peter, you have to wonder why all of a sudden this guy is now here telling you how to do your job. Uh, Peter wasn't just out with his boys on a day at the lake. He was a fisherman. That was his job. That was his trade. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, not a fisherman. Jesus' trade was a carpenter. Uh, So we have a carpenter telling the fishermen how to fish. And it's off the heels of them not having a very good night fishing, okay? So my guess is Peter is in some kind of mood. So last summer, my family and I went on vacation uh, with my mother and father-in-law to Newport Beach, California, a beautiful place that I could never afford to live. Um, I will preface this story with this. I am 100% secure in my manhood. But there is a little caveat to that. There are rooms that I will be in or places that I will go where you might as well remove my man card immediately upon me walking in the door. Uh, You want to talk sports? I'll talk sports with you. You want to talk about the Bible? I'll talk about the Bible with you. But anything like outdoorsy, and I know if Stephen Miller's in here, he's rolling his eyes. Anything outdoorsy or anything like that, uh, I'm about as out of place as it gets. Aside from high school football camp, never been camping in my life. And here's another one. I've never been fishing. Uh, I don't want to go camping or fishing. Don't invite me to go with you in the lobby. I'll tell you no. So we're in Newport Beach last summer. My in-laws in the morning, they're like, let's walk down to uh, the beach. There's an open air fish market where they sell fresh fish. So it's like 8 a.m. Right off the beach, just this smelly, fishy place. Uh, They all caught fresh fish from the night before. We're like first people there, only people there. Uh, My in-laws go up to the guy. They'd done this before, so we're just rookies. And and they start asking the guy, well, what did you catch last night? What was good? Uh, My mother-in-law wanted salmon. Uh, It apparently wasn't the night for salmon. So here you got this, like, big old burly, like, this dude weighed, like, 300 pounds, big old burly fisherman who could snap me in half, just looks at us and is like, I don't have any salmon. It wasn't a good night for salmon. You know what I didn't do? Preacher boy over here, I wasn't like, hey, you know what, bro? Why don't you get back into your boat? Why don't you sail like five nautical miles west-northwest, and then when you do that, throw your nets down, you're going to catch some salmon because my mother-in-law would like some salmon. No. Big burly fisherman doesn't have salmon. You just listen to him. You move on to rockfish or what else is available. Other side here, the big burly fisherman who knows how to fish. Let's just say that I, the pastor of Salt Church, was like sneaky good at fishing. I've made an appearance on Deadliest Catch. He probably that day didn't really, he didn't care who I came from, 
didn't want me to sit there and tell him how to do his job. Just like many of you wouldn't want me to go to your job and tell you how to do it, even though you do that to me. But here we are in Luke 5. We have Jesus, the carpenter, telling Peter, the fisherman, how to fish. That's weird. And you see Peter's hesitancy in verse 5. Like, Master, we've been working all night, man. We've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. You see us here, like, monotonously cleaning these empty nets that were never dirty to begin with. But hey, desperate times call for desperate measures. The guy can teach scripture. Maybe he's got this weird knack for catching fish. So end of verse 5, Peter responds. He says, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Verse 6, what do you know? When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, hey, come help. They came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. So a bad night turns into a great day at the lake, right? But it was almost a disaster. So many fish, their nets began to tear. Again, never been fishing in my life. I would think if fish fall through the nets, that's not good. Peter and Andrew, they signal James and John. So you have Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all four of which will go on to not just be Jesus' disciples, but be prominent in establishing the Christian church. They come together, the four of them as fishermen, in two boats, and they pull the boats and the nets in the boats that are so full of fish that they're about to sink, and they pull the boats to shore. And this elicits a response. No matter who you are, the four of them, us today, if that was us sitting there, those of us in the room this morning, all four of these guys, you have to think one way or another about what Jesus Christ just did. Luke focuses on Peter's response. In verse 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I'm a sinful man, Lord For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. The amazement of Jesus' provision moved Peter to a response that many of us have when we encounter the living God. Here is Jesus on the shore, God in the flesh, working a divine miracle. And the first thing Peter goes to think is, I don't belong in this guy's presence. Go away from me. Stand back from me. I'm not like you. Who are you? I'm a sinful man. How can someone so sinful stand next to something so perfect like this? It's like Peter's confused. He had talked to Jesus before this event. He knows who Jesus is, but yet he's reluctant to fully get into his presence because there was a contrast there between the filthiness of Peter's sin and the moral perfection of Jesus Christ. So the natural response, I think for a lot of us, is like to stand in front of that and say, go away from me, like I can never measure up to that. Uh, The question for us this morning then, if that's our natural response to Jesus, if that's our natural bent, is that the proper one? Again, it's away from or toward. Uh, Let's look at a similar similar story that happens three years later. Uh, Turn to John 21. Uh, At this point, Jesus has been crucified on a cross. He's now resurrected from the dead, which is why we're here today. Uh, When we get to John 21, Jesus has already been crucified, buried, and resurrected. Uh, After Jesus resurrects and comes out of the tomb, uh, Jesus appeared to multiple people with his resurrected body. Uh, He appeared to the women at the tomb. In particular, he had a conversation with Mary Magdalene. He walked and ate with two guys on a road. Uh, He appeared to Peter individually. We don't know what that conversation was like. Uh, He appeared to the 11 disciples where he showed them the holes in his hands. He showed them the scar from the spear that was stuck in his side on the cross. 
Then he actually talked to one of his disciples, which we know as Doubting Thomas, who was like, no way, that's you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, dude, look at the holes. And I can do not just a whole sermon, but like a whole sermon series on the resurrected body of Jesus. But just know this. Jesus in his resurrected body looked differently than he did on the cross or even right before he went to the cross. That's like fundamental to the resurrection. All of us in this room one day will live in resurrected bodies, live in perfect bodies. Like there will come a day where I have hair on my head again. And that's going to be an awesome day. But I say all this to stay on track with where we're at this morning. In every appearance that Jesus made after he came out of the tomb, the one we're about to cover, Jesus wasn't immediately recognizable with his body. Uh, So just keep that in mind as we read John 21. Again, three years after Peter and the fishermen's encounter in Luke 5, we got John 21 starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Remember, Luke 5. First story, same lake. Uh, This is the Sea of Galilee, also called Lake Gennesaret, uh, the Sea of Tiberias, all one lake. It's the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, he revealed himself in this way. He revealed himself to Simon Peter, to Thomas, called twin, uh, Nathaniel from Canaan of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. So seven of Jesus' disciples, Peter's mentioned first, and that's for a reason. Uh, Verse 3. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat that night, and they caught nothing. Does that sound familiar? When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and what do you know? They were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. So nearly the same situation that we just talked about in Luke 5, except now it's three years later. It's seven disciples in one boat, not four disciples with two boats. Same lake, everything. Jesus appears on the same shore as he was before that he taught from. He stands on the shore, yells out to the men, you don't have any fish, do you? Because he's God, he knows everything. He knows they don't have fish. Then again, the carpenter is about to give instructions to the fishermen. But hey, at least he's done it before. And what do you know? They put their nets on the right side of the boat. They catch so many fish, they were unable to haul the fish in. Now watch Peter's reaction. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, that's the Lord. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, who wrote this book, John. He's calling himself the one that Jesus loved. Kind of odd. But he tells Peter, that's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. That's a good day fishing. Even though there were so many, the net was not even torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Notice Peter's reaction in verse 7. 
John tells him, Peter, that's Jesus. Like, that's him. Peter, I'm guessing, like after the fish came in the net, had a hunch. He grabs everything that he brought with him in the boat, ties it around him, jumps out of the boat, swims 100 yards to Jesus, literally leaves his friends, the fish, all that stuff going down in the boat, everything, leaves it behind, jumps out of the boat, swims 100 yards, open water swim to Jesus who was on the shore. That's a stark contrast from the first time this story happened. The first time, they caught all the fish three years prior. Remember the reaction was, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Now you have Peter, seize the resurrected Jesus, the one who fulfilled every single promise that he ever made to Peter and his disciples. The one who once looked at his disciples and said, I'm going to die, and in three days later, I'm going to rise. The one that conquered death. He encountered the resurrected Christ on the shore that day, and his reaction was to move toward him as fast as he possibly could. There's some truth in that for us today, isn't there? When you encounter the resurrected Christ, you either move toward him or you move away from him. Let me make an argument with you this morning that the answer always should be that you should move toward him. If you know anything about your Bible, uh, you know several days before this event in John 21, Jesus Christ is arrested in the garden. Uh, Immediately after being arrested, Jesus gets put on trial with the Jewish leaders, and the minute they start to spit in Jesus' face, they blindfolded him, they slapped him, they punched him, they mocked him. There's Peter in the crowd, like yards away, seeing that happen to Jesus. A servant girl points at Peter, hey, isn't that the guy that was with him? Peter's like, woman, I I don't know what you're talking about. Another bystander points at Peter, hey, that's one of Jesus' disciples, isn't it? Peter, "I I have no idea what you're talking about. Third time, another man, hey, your accent, that sounds Galilean, aren't you with Jesus? Peter, I don't know the man that you speak of. Three denials, then the rooster crows, right? Now here we are, a week after the denials, Peter swims to Jesus on the shore. You think that when he got to the beach, it would have been a little bit of an awkward interaction? Jesus would be like, bro, really? You denied me three times. Again, my argument is that it's always good to move toward Jesus. Watch what Jesus does with Peter. Verse 15 says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Well, feed my lambs, he told him. Kind of an interesting question, right? He gets Peter alone, and the first thing that he does is he asks him a question that would probe to the depth of Peter's being. He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter then answers that question, and he appeals to the fact of Christ's knowledge of all things. He's not trying to compare himself to the other disciples who are still over there eating breakfast. He's right away looking at Jesus, understanding the security that comes when you are in Christ. The fact that when Jesus asks you that question, you don't need to over and over and over again prove yourself to Christ that you're good enough to be accepted. He's looking at Jesus saying, Jesus, you know, because you know all things. You know my heart. You know that deep down, Jesus, I love you. Well, okay, Peter, if you love me, go feed my lambs. Well, what in the world does that mean? It means go out and minister. Go do my work. You followed me for three years. Follow through with that. Go do your thing. But then Jesus continues. He asks him again. A second time, he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Well, shepherd my sheep, he told him. So same thing. Do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. All right, shepherd my sheep. But hey, let's just ask one more time to make sure he's good to go. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Well, feed my sheep, Jesus said. Why does Jesus ask Peter that three times? I thought Jesus was God. I thought he knew everything. It's here you start to see the beauty and the gentleness of Jesus Christ when you move toward him. Days earlier, it was Peter yards away from watching Jesus be beaten before he was put on the cross, who sat there and denied Jesus three times. Now Peter stands before the resurrected Christ, who cheated death, who conquered the tomb, and he's met with gentleness. He was restored by Jesus Christ just as many times that he denied him. So here you see the contrast of Peter's actions. Same two events. You have Luke 5, Fishing in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus gives him instructions. Peter doesn't quite know him, but he follows his instructions, realizes this guy's different. Away from me, I can't stand in your presence. I'm a sinful man. Peter then spends three years with Jesus, watching Jesus do miracles, everything that we never got to see in person. Then Jesus is crucified. He's buried in a tomb, resurrects three days later. Now here's Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the same exact situation. The men are fishing on the sea. The resurrected Christ steps up to the shore. Peter realizes it's him. Peter sees it's Jesus. He doesn't cower in the boat. He doesn't run and swim the other way. He doesn't run away from Jesus and cower in shame. He doesn't ignore the guy yelling to him. No, he jumps out and he swims to Jesus. He enters in conversation with Jesus, knowing full well that a week earlier he denied him right in front of his face. And yet when he looks in the eyes of the resurrected Jesus Christ, he's met with gentleness, he's met with grace, he's met with forgiveness, and he is completely restored by Jesus. The reason this morning I want us to identify as Peter is because I think a lot of us really do. If you read the Gospels, it's really easily relatable. Everything that Peter does is stuff that we do. Uh, Peter's trust or dependency or his confidence on Jesus seemed to kind of wax and wane with his emotions. You know, you have Jesus at one point in the Gospels. He's walking on the water. You guys have all heard that before. Peter's the guy who jumps out of the boat, also tries to walk on the water. Peter says something crazy. Jesus looks at him. He's like, get behind me, Satan. The night Jesus is crucified in the garden, Peter whips out a sword, cuts off the soldier's ear, trying to protect Jesus. Five minutes later, he's denying him. He's all over the place. We're kind of like that. It's like things aren't going well. Jesus feels really distant. Things feel really good. Jesus feels near. We don't really know. The difference between the fishing trips is that the first encounter took place in a season of the unknown. Here in John 21, Peter's talking to the man who came, who lived, who ministered in front of him for three years, lived a perfect life, died a brutal and unwarranted death, and then he stands in front of Peter in his resurrected body, thus fulfilling every single promise he ever made. The fact for Peter and the fact for all of us in this room this morning is that when you encounter the resurrected Christ, you have to make a decision whether you're going to move toward him or run away from him. You can't just stand still. I'm begging you this morning, 
If you're scared to move toward Christ because you think it's going to be met with judgment and a slap on the wrist, see in Peter that when you bring yourself to Jesus, it does not matter if you go up to Jesus and list the thousand worst sins you've ever committed. Jesus Christ will restore all thousand of them with grace, restoration, and forgiveness. Because of the cross, your slate of sin, everything you've ever done in your life that you're embarrassed of, because of the cross of Christ, that is wiped clean. Because of Christ's resurrection, walking out of that tomb, he cheats death and now has given us hope for the future. Uh, A couple months ago, I had to Uber to the mechanic, and my Uber driver picks me up in a white Tesla. I was like, why is this guy driving an Uber? Um, He picks me up. And it's one of those Teslas that you can like see really clearly in the front window, I think, because everybody who drives a Tesla wants everybody to know they own one. Um, white interior, like nice white seats, like the kind of car I would not allow my children to get in, okay? I get in, and I'm like, hey, man, this is a nice car. Like, I've never been in a Tesla before, like screens like that size. And I'm like, this is nice. He's like, yeah, I just bought it. This car is like three days old. I'm like, oh, man. And here I am in the back seat. I'm like making sure I don't have anything on my pants. Didn't want to mess up like something that looks so clean. That's how a lot of us are when it comes to Christ. Like I can't get near him. I have sin. I can't approach him. I'm unclean. I won't be accepted by him. I'm not churchy enough. The truth this morning is that you don't need to clean yourself to get restored by Christ. Christ doesn't care how dirty you are. He's just like get in the car. Let's look how Jesus finishes this interaction with Peter. He kind of flips the script here. He says, truly I tell you, when you were younger, Peter, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. That's kind of weird, isn't it? He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Jesus kind of leaves things with Peter on this ominous note. He says, Peter, when you were younger, man, you could do whatever you wanted. But hey, you're going to serve me, and you're going to get to a point where it's not going to be like that anymore. John even recognizes here in verse 19 that Jesus is prophesying to Peter that he's going to die a brutal death. Well, what an awesome invitation to be a Christian, right? So Jesus doesn't ask him. He gives Peter a command in verse 19. He looks at Peter, and he says, follow me. And Peter's decision is clear on what he does. Read the rest of the New Testament. About a month after Jesus right here asked him to follow him, Peter is standing there preaching at Pentecost and largely responsible for starting the Christian church that we are gathered here today in 2023. Peter's encounter with the resurrected Christ changed the trajectory of his life. Before, Peter knew about Jesus. He even walked with Jesus. He could tell you all the stories of what Jesus did. Now, he followed Jesus. I often wonder if that time that day when he was fishing was the last time that Peter ever went fishing. His life in that moment changed because he committed it to Christ. When you move toward Jesus, your life changes. It shouldn't look the same. Your priorities change. Your desires change. And they all move toward their seasons in your life where you have to trust him. No matter the circumstances in your life, when they lead you to like wax and wane emotionally with your feelings of Christ, Christ conquered death. Nobody else in the history of mankind can say that, nor will they ever be able to say, Christ conquered death. With that, you can trust him. If you can't trust that, you can't trust anything. 
Christ did everything he said he would do. This shows us that he's both good and he fulfills his promises. Because Christ resurrected from the grave, we are offered hope for eternity. You want to know how Peter's life ended? Jesus says, follow me. He does so without hesitancy. At the end of Peter's life, he's crucified upside down for living his life for Christ. He wanted to be flipped upside down because he wasn't worthy enough to die like his Savior. It didn't matter to him that that's the worst his life was ever going to be. You know where Peter is right now as I stand up here and preach? He's with Jesus. My question for you this morning is, do you have that kind of confidence? Is there something rock solid in your life that you feel confident in putting all your trust in? Uh, If not, I want to encourage you this morning to take that step and move toward Jesus Christ. Uh, My wife and I have a a garage gym, and we try to work out every day. Uh, The other morning, uh, we're working out. We listen to country while we work out. Don't judge me. Um, There's this artist named Zach Bryan. Uh, He has a song called Fifth of May, and uh, here's the lyrics of the chorus. He says, getting high is easy. Getting drunk is fine. It's the getting by that'll get a soul down. So if you need me, know that I'm bleeding somewhere alone in some coastal town. I'm like in the middle of like a set of curls, and I'm like, what did he just say? Like, how sad. How sad of like a song lyric. Getting high is easy. Getting drunk is fine. It's the getting by in life, though, is what's the difficult part. That's the struggle. And I think that's true for a lot of us. Again, our thoughts of Jesus wax and wane on our emotions instead of being firmly rooted in truth. So the things that temporarily fill you, and all of us are guilty of this in this room, those things could be relationships, those things could be identity, or it could be like this song, that the minute you're wounded, you run to the nearest vice that will fill you. Those things that bring temporary fulfillment in your life are so unstable. With Christ, it's opposite. It's like the getting by is the easy part. The key to all these verses this morning is verse 18 where Jesus tells him, Peter, one day you're going to follow me and one day you're going to die a brutal death. But yet Peter, without hesitancy, he just follows Jesus. Like think about how crazy that is. It's because he's looking at a man who cheated death right in the eyes. And in that moment, he knows that Jesus can be trusted. Not just that, it showed that Peter... Every circumstance in his life, this present life, that's all that it was. It's eternity that's stake, not the present. In my personal life right now, like outside of church, Michael Stahl, the son, uh, I am dealing with an unbelievably difficult family situation, one that does not have the right answer. Without Christ, I'd be a mess. I'd be leaning on my own strength. I'd wake up every day and just kind of roll the dice and hope I make the best decision possible. Without him... I'd be like that dude who sings country. It's the getting by that would be so hard. But here's the deal. I know what the future looks like. I know that Christ is one. I know that Christ has prepared a place for me far better than I could ever experience on this earth. So in the temporary, I don't live and die by my circumstances. I put my trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins, wiping my slate of sin clean, and then Jesus Christ came out of the tomb three days later, showing me that it wasn't just him who conquered death, but all who call upon his name conquer death if you trust him. So the question this morning is what's stopping you from jumping two feet in and following him? What circumstances in your life do you think he can't forgive you of? 
What are you placing your current hope in? Are those things eternal or is it temporary fulfillment that you sit here today and you're still empty? There's nothing more solid than to put your hope in the one who conquered death. Would you bow your heads and let me pray? Father, I thank you for how great you are. Lord, I thank you for how much you care about us. Uh, the fact that you sent your son to be the only possible sacrifice for our sin. Uh, and God, that work on the cross forgave us of our sins, but Jesus walking out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, God, is what showed us that we have eternal life. Uh, so Father, this morning I pray that you just work in this room. Uh, do everything that you need for the people who have been walking with you a while but are discouraged. Uh, Lord, I pray that you just show them that the circumstances in this life don't mean much. Uh, God, that we can just follow you with everything that we have. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room that don't follow you at all. Uh, they've never put their trust in you. They've never put their hope or faith in you. God, this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit just ministers to hearts and that you would move in this room. Uh, Lord, not to manipulate emotions, but God, to see that all the things that we seek in this life leave us with so much emptiness. God, it's only you that can fill. Uh, so Father, I just give today to you. Lord, we worship you. And we praise you for how great you are. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for how awesome you are, how you walked out of the tomb. So God, we give today to you. Just minister in this place. It's in your name I pray. Amen.